want to welcome everybody watching uh, by webcast or watching through our online community. Let's give them a warm welcome and thank God for you guys. And thanks for for you guys that are here making it out to this Bible study, making this out, making it out to this time together that we can have some of this intimate time together studying God's word. Um, so in, back in first Samuel, chapter 10, verse one, we began talking about how to access your inheritance last uh, last Wednesday. But in Acts chapter um, excuse me, in in first Samuel, chapter 10, verse one. So Samuel, who is the prophet, he he is the prophet that God picked to anoint the king of Israel. So Samuel finds Saul. God told him, and we'll see in chapter nine when we get to that, we're, come, we're going to go backwards to chapter nine. But it says Samuel took the flask of oil and and poured it on Samuel, on Saul's head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you to, to be commander over his inheritance? So everybody has an inheritance. Old Testament stories, which are real stories, these really happen. Old Testament history is a prophecy of New Testament destiny. So uh, somebody in the Old Testament, their history is a prophecy of your destiny. So the history of Saul is that God had God uh, called him to be king over the first king over Israel and that he would be a ruler over his inheritance. We have to learn how to rule our inheritance. God gives us, God has put in his will uh, things for you to inherit. When Jesus died, there's, an, there's a will. So just like when you die, hopefully you'll have a will that a lawyer will read to the people that are the recipients of the will, right? And they will receive the benefits of the things that that person had possessed or if it's your will, the things that you possessed will be passed on to your children, your grandchildren or whoever you put in the will. Well, God has put you and me and all of his children in his will. And his will can only go into a, a will only actually begins to go into effect when somebody dies. Look at Hebrews chapter nine, verse 16. He says, um, I think it's verse 16, Hebrews chapter nine. Verse 16, let's look this for where there is a testament. He's, he's if you uh, if you use maybe the New American Standard translation might say where there is a will, but it's the word testament is the word covenant, but it also means will. It's just it's the same word. It's the word will where there is a testament, where there is a covenant, where there is a will, there is of necessity to prove the death of the one who made it. In other words, it is it, it, the will can only go into effect when the one who made it dies. So we sometimes limit what Jesus did for us by limiting it to, well, he Jesus. Died. We all know Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven. Right. Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Our sins could be washed away and we could have a relationship with God. But he also in addition to that, because it's just endless how good God is. He gave us he's, he 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 wrote his will. He said in the case of a will or a testament. So the the New Testament is God's new will for your life. He calls it a testament in the New King James that we just read. He calls it a will in the NIV here in the case of a will or in the case of a testament. There must also be the death of the one who made it. So do you see Jesus didn't just die for you to for you to for you to be saved and be forgiven of your sins. He died to put you in the will. He died so the will can go into effect. So whatever's in the will, I wish I had time to get into this more. It's not my purpose today, but it would be a good teaching just to focus on what's in the will. But whatever's in the will, there's seven thousand promises in the will. Does this make any sense so far? There's 7000 things that God left us in his will. And all of those things can only become ours when God dies. Well, 2000 years ago, God died in Christ. When Jesus died, part of God died and, of course, rose from the dead. Right. Where there is a where there is a testament or where there is a will. There must also of necessity, it is necessary that the testator, the one who writes the will, 
the one who writes the testament, dies. So all, like, I think life would be so much easier for us if we would stop struggling and realizing Jesus died to give you an inheritance. Okay. And, 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 and the studying of the Bible should not be a study of what am I doing wrong? What do I need to fix? What do I need to do right? What, what's God mad about me this time? What God, you know, what's God going to judge me about now? Not, nothing. He's not going to judge anything about you. He's forgiven you. Your, path, your sins are past. They're washed away. He doesn't even remember them. He's chosen to forget. Your sins and your iniquities he will not remember anymore. I know that's hard to swallow, but that's why we need to see it in the scriptures. And I wish I had more time to get into that. I, I really want to get to some of this other stuff. So stop interrupting me, please. I, I need to get to this, okay? But it's really important that you, <laughs> that you get a hold of this. He goes on in verse 17 of Hebrews 9. He continues, For a testament is in force after men are dead. It has no power while the testator lives. So all of the things in the Testament, all the things in the covenant, all of the things in God's will, those are three interchangeable words. Testament, covenant, and will are all the same word. We just saw in three different translations, three different words. They're the same word. Testament, New Testament, covenant, New Covenant, and will. This is God's will. Sometimes we're asking God, what is your will? What is your will? Well, it's all written down. All of his will. It's, it's his, here's his will. Like if somebody died, if we had a funeral and, and the will was, was in front of uh, the family members, in front of the lawyer's office, and what if all the, the family members were crying and moaning, oh, what's his will? I wonder what grandpa's will was. I wonder what grandma's will was. I wonder what great-grandfather's will was. It's right in front of you. Just read it. The lawyer's there to interpret it for you, to read it for you. And uh, so I'm just standing here as the lawyer, just telling you what God left for you when Jesus died. Does that make any sense at all? Most people, most people, they don't read the Bible like that because they don't understand what the word testament. We think Old Testament, New Testament, that's just the books in the, you know, the books that before Matthew and then the books after Matthew. That's the Old Testament, New Testament. They don't understand. No, this is a covenant. This is God's will for your life now. And this is what God has made yours, your inheritance. Okay. And so if you go back now, putting that in perspective, go back to um, go back to 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 first Samuel, chapter 10, verse one. So God said, so Samuel said to to Saul, he poured the oil. Remember, the oil represents four things. Does anybody remember what those things are? This will, this will give me a lot of reason to repeat myself because none of you are going to remember the four things. Oh, man, some of you do. All right. What are the four things? Does anybody remember the four things? The, the oil represents four things. Number one, oil represents the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, light to my path. They used oil for, for, for lamps and they used oil for light. So it's the word of God is oil. Um, two, oil represents the Holy Spirit. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is upon me. Uh, the Bible talks about the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the anointing of oil. Um, in, um, in, and then, of course, in Psalm 133, he says, I think it's in verse 2, how beautiful and, pr- and pleasant it is. In Psalm 133, verse 2, how good and how pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. If you guys can put up Psalm 133, verse 1 and 2, wherever that is. How good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. Look at verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is when we dwell together in what? Unity. Well, there's something about us coming together and believing together and being a part of a community. Community comes from unity. Uh, It's it's what a group of people have in common that brings them a sense of unity. That's what community is. It's community. And so God puts people in a spiritual community. He puts us all now. Everybody belongs in a church community. Not everybody belongs in this one. 
We want more and more people to belong to this one. Any church that is healthy wants more people in it, because if we're benefiting one person, we can benefit 100. If we're benefiting 100, we can benefit 1,000. If we're benefiting 1,000, we can benefit 10,000 and so on and so on. And so we want more people to be impacted by God's love and by God's power. But when when we dwell together in unity, that doesn't mean we're all the same. It's you can have diversity with unity. You still with me now? So we can be of diverse ages, diverse races, diverse ethnic groups, diverse political influences, diverse backgrounds, diverse financial situations, diverse social uh, experiences. We can be diverse in our size and our height. We can be diverse in our in our stature. We can be diverse in our width, our height, our breadth, our length, our color, all of it. We can be diverse and still be and still have unity. Right. Because we have a common Lord, Jesus, and we follow in the word of God. We're in a church that has a vision and a mission to introduce people to the real Jesus. Our mission is to elevate people to rise to their true worth, empower them to rise to their true worth and purpose, and then to change mindsets that change the world. That's the mission of this church. That's the mission of this ministry threefold to introduce people to the real Jesus to empower people to rise to their true worth and purpose. You have worth and you have purpose and God wants us to rise to it and to be empowered to rise to it. I haven't risen to my full worth and purpose yet. I'm on my way. I'm going up. I'm going in the right direction, but I haven't gotten there yet and neither have you. So come on, keep reading your Bible with me. All right. And keep coming together and And to change mindsets that change the world. That's our mission, to change mindsets that change the world. As we change our thinking, we can change the world one life at a time. You're not going to you're not going to you're not going to stop crime in the country or in our city or racism or all the divisions and all the hate and violence. You're not going to stop that with just more laws. You're not going to stop that by having more external restriction. You're not going to stop that just by arresting more people, although that certainly is a part of it to arrest the bad people. Come on now. Don't shout me down on that one. But that's not that 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 can that can make that can subdue crime that can suppress it. But it doesn't change people. What changes people is when is when their thinking is changed. When you're no longer afraid of somebody of another color because you're not living in fear, you're living in love and perfect love casts out fear, then that begins to to quench hatred. It quenches fear, it quenches uh, suspicion all the time. And, and, And really, why do we why are we suspicious? Man, I wish I had time to drill down on this. But the reason we're so the reason we get so suspicious of other people is because we're afraid of death. Our greatest fear is the fear of death. Our second greatest fear. There's two two great fears in this world that dominate most people. The first one is the fear of death. That is the greatest fear of all, the fear of death. People don't realize it, but they're afraid of death. And and the second greatest fear is to speak in front of people. Did you know that? Like studies show, that's the second greatest fear to speak in front of people. But the, the, the fear of death is why people get suspicious. Like you're suspicious of somebody. Why? Because they might be they might they might have the power to kill me. Well, when you realize nobody has the power to destroy your soul, because when you're born again, you are going to live forever to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As soon as you die, the Bible says, as soon as you die, if you're if you're in Christ, if you're born again, which simply means you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior and Lord, if you're born again, the moment you die, you're going to be home with Jesus. So so now I can walk through the streets. Now, there are some streets I'm not going to walk down at certain times alone. Come on, we got to have some wisdom now because I don't have the fear of I don't I, I, I don't I'm not afraid to die. I'm just not ready to, you know, <laughs> and maybe you think it's the same thing. It's not. I, I, I am not afraid to die, but I'm just not ready to because I got a mission. I have a purpose. I have an assignment. I still got to raise a 12 year old. So I'm not ready to go. You with me? Now, the older kids, they might be ready for me to go and tap into that will. I don't know. I don't know what their motives are. God only knows. (laughs) Just playing. 
<laughs> but here, here's the thing. Sorry, I'm not getting to where I want to get to, but we're, we're somewhere. Right? I hope you're just enjoying the ride. And we haven't gotten to the stop sign yet, but it's a nice ride there on the way. Okay, so thank you for that absolutely. I got one absolutely. Love that. Um, okay, so, um, so this, this, this is what, this is what um, why people get suspicious is because they're, they're afraid to die. You, you lose all suspicion when love comes into your life. And not, not, not human love, because human love is so topsy-turvy. It's up and down. It's, it's, it's a roller coaster. It's, it's, not, it, it's good when it's there, but it, you, you shouldn't build your life on human love. You should build your life on divine love, God's love for you, which is forever, everlasting love. It's uh, uh, Malachi 1-2. Look at Malachi 1-2. Malachi chapter 1-2 in the... Um, what is it in the New Living Translation? Um, look, look at the New Living Translation. Maybe I have this wrong, but look at the New Living. Okay, here it is. I have always loved you, says the Lord. I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you respond, really? Isn't that how we are sometimes? What? Really? Because why am I going through all this bad stuff? If you have always loved me, why am I always having these same problems? Why am I always having this difficulty? If you've always loved me, he said, really, how have you loved us? And the Lord said, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I hated his brother Esau. And we don't have time to get into that teaching of Esau represents Jesus and Jacob represents you and how God hated Jesus on the cross, put him on the cross so he could turn his love towards you. Um, but there's no time that we get for us to get into that. But I think you can just get a revelation just just by hearing just that. You go study that yourself. We've taught on that many times. But what my point here is, is that this is the kind of love that casts out fear. Back to verse one I, or verse two. I have always loved you. I have all, this is God speaking to you. I have always loved you. You mean when I was really screwed up? I have always loved you. You mean when I blew it? When haven't you blown it? I have always loved you. Uh, you mean, uh, you mean when I got saved, right? You mean only when I got born again, when I finally made Jesus the Lord of my life? No, I have always loved you. You mean when I repented of my, you mean when I stopped doing all those bad? No, I have always loved you. See, this casts out fear and fear is what causes you to do stupid things. You do, you make stupid decisions because you're afraid if I don't take this, if I don't have this, if I don't get this, if I don't do this, then I'm never going to have it again. I'm never going to have it. You know what? First of all, God will supply all your needs. But secondly, there are some things not worth having. There are some things you probably really don't want to have because they will bring more problems in your life later than what you thought they would bring. All right. So we're down, you know, we're down in the rabbit. I don't know. Where did Alice in Wonderland go? We're down there somewhere where all the crazy people are. All right. So get back up. Come back up here. Um, so so go now to first Samuel chapter nine. And we've and I want to kind of tie this to something I spoke about weeks ago regarding insecurity, because the re- insecurity and fear are, are really twins. They're really the same, you know, two, two sides of the same coin. Um, and I, I began to talk to you about healing insecurity. I just want to say a couple things about that to get to where I want to be in first Samuel chapter nine, because what, what insecurity is, is it's insecurity is the feeling of an awareness of a hole or a gap in your in your soul. So whenever a person is insecure, it's because they have an awareness. Now, some people should be insecure, but they're not because they don't have an awareness of the hole or the gap in their soul. So they don't feel the impact that that hole has on their life. Um, But for me, insecurity growing up triggered my, my, my awareness of the gap in my life between, between sadness and happiness. 
the gap between hope and hopelessness, the gap between uh, um, rejection and love. So I was aware at an early age of the of the of these gaps in my life. Okay, and when I knew that these gaps existed, it was like there was a vacuum inside of me. There was a huge hole inside of me. It was insecurity. It wasn't it wasn't sinful for me to feel insecure. It was an awareness that there's a hole. It was an awareness. There's a gap between where I am and where I want to be in life, between who I am and who I want to be in my life. There's a gap between how I feel about myself and how I should feel about myself. You understand the gap? Okay, that's insecurity. That's insecurity. And so for me, those insecurities, my awareness of those at a young age triggered in me an effort to fill those holes. Okay, so now I'm not the only person with this condition. Uh, we're, we're, we're all like this in many ways. We just handle it differently. So when I was aware of that gap, when I was aware of those holes, I tried to fill those holes with various things, whether those were, whether that was drugs, whether that was alcohol, whether that was people, whether that was money, whether that was, you know, whatever it was, the controlling other people, manipulate, whatever it was that temporarily built a bridge in that hole, in that gap, I would resort to because I didn't want to have the gap. The gap made me feel bad about myself. Okay, you, you with me still? So, so when, I, when I kept filling the gap with all these artificial stimulants, I, and, and coming up empty, Jesus showed up and said to me, in essence, you had enough of that yet? Because none of that's working, but I, I work. And remember, I told you that Jesus, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. It says the Bible says Jesus is our intercessor and the word intercessor is one who fills the gap. The actual definition for the word intercessor is one who fills the gap. So Jesus showed up in my life one day in my heart, in my consciousness, in my awareness. He didn't come to my room. I didn't see him. I've seen him once. Um, What I believe I've seen him once like in a vision. But I saw him that day in not in a vision, but in my consciousness, in my awareness. Okay. In my, like, I, I knew he was speaking to me. I knew he was pulling me. I knew he was saying, let me in and I'll fill that gap. Let me in and I'll fill that gap. So insecurity is the result of your awareness of that gap. And that's why that gap needs to be filled to heal you of insecurity to truly heal you of it. You can fill it with other stuff, but it won't heal you of it. It will just create a temporary bridge. But believe me, it, that, those, those kinds of bridges are not well constructed and they will break and they will break when you're not expecting it and they will break fast and they will fall apart quickly because they have no firm footing. But Jesus does. He is our firm footing. So... Boy, I hope this makes sense to you. See, why is this so important? Because insecurity leads us to withdraw from close relationships. We run from the people who are really God sent for us. Uh, It's funny how I see people run. They leave church, not when things are going good, but things are going bad. You know, when things are going bad, that's the time to draw closer. Because now not all churches, because some people, you let them know what, you know, what's happened in your life. Like if I told everybody what's happened in my life, we probably wouldn't have a church. But if you told me everything that happened in your life, I wouldn't want you either. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the truth is, is the church the church should be the safest place in the world with the most non-judgmental place. I mean, 
I'm just trying to help. You know, we're not here to be religious. The church should be the safest place in the world where you can let your hair down and not feel like you're going to be judged and that you can be like, I blew it. I messed up. I screwed up. And it's just sad to me that anybody that messes up and screws up based on the definition of somebody else's rules is all of a sudden, you know, it's not allowed or cast out or doesn't belong or you, 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 you get it. You get that fixed in your life and then come back and be with it. What? Who would that? Right. Who do we think we are that we somehow are better than anybody else? I just want you to know when you start inviting people to come to your church and they don't feel any of that self-righteousness, they're way more willing to come. I bet we can blow this place up if we would start really not if we would really stop thinking that we're better than anybody else and start realizing we've been victims of God's mercy. Now, I know you say, I know you say, come on now. Come on now, pastor. You say, come on now, pastor. You teach us not to be victims. But okay, in this case, I'm making an exception. We're not supposed to be victims of our past or victims of our pain or prisoners of our pain or defined by our past or defined by our limitations. But we we are victims of mercy. You call it whatever you want. That's what I like to call it. Like like I was suddenly um, overwhelmed with the outrageous mercy of God, like suddenly when I didn't deserve it. You know how when somebody's a victim of something bad, they didn't deserve for that thing to ha- that bad thing to happen to them. But mercy is so good. And when God gives it to you, it's you didn't deserve for that to have happened to you. You didn't deserve for God to be that good to you. You didn't deserve for God to be that merciful to you. You didn't deserve for God to be that that forgiving to you. I didn't deserve for God to be that forgiving to me, that merciful to me, that that gracious to me, that patient with me. So when I live and talk to people from that point of view, that's going to win more souls than me, you know, throwing a Bible at them. And banging them over the head with, you got to get religion. You got to get right. You got to get this. You got to do this. You got to change this. You better stop doing that. You better stop doing that. And don't you see? Like people have common sense. Common sense should lead us when it comes to what we should and should not do as far as our behavior is concerned. We don't need God to tell us not to sin. We just need common sense. Like you don't need the Lord to appear to you and say, you know what? Thus say me to you, unto you, unto thee. Thou shalt not kill your brother. No one needs God to show up and tell you that all you need to do is be afraid to go to jail. <laughs> Common sense. Common sense. And it's not just I mean, I'm making fun of that. It's not just that. That's not the only reason. Like, how about that person has that person's life has value? Maybe that's a good reason not to kill them. <laughs> maybe you maybe you shouldn't throw away your life, throw away their life, your life and all the lives of the people that your guys are connected to. Maybe that's a good common sense reason. But you just don't need Jesus to show up and tell you that in order for you to get a clue, right? What you need Jesus to tell you and what you need to hear from God is how how much worth you have, how much value you have to him, how important you are to him, how much of a destiny you have in him and how much love he has for you because it closes the gap of insecurity. You see? Am I in the right place here today? You guys getting something out of this? Still got some. You still got that. Labor Day hamburger hangover or something. I don't know. Um, so. So insecurity, it causes us to withdraw. It, it causes us to surround ourselves with the wrong people. And it causes us to um, whenever we feel threatened, we have to attack others. 
we have to attack the person we feel threatened by rather than taking control of our feelings and say, you know what, I'm not going to be threatened by that. So I don't have to be defensive because that's not a threat to me. God will protect me. God will lead me. God will guide me. I don't have to live and operate in fear. I don't have to be I don't have to get defensive. But I have a whole teaching on just how to not be defensive. I wanted to get to some of that today, but let's see how far we go in the next, you know, six minutes here. We're not getting very far, but maybe it's going deep. Maybe we're not going far, but we're going deep. And hopefully you'll get something out of this. Um, it leads us to the, the, the insecurity. It leads us to be very hard to correct. So when you're insecure and you have this gap inside of you, the gap between who you are and who you want to be, the gap between hate and love or feeling bad about yourself and feeling good about yourself, all those things that I told you, when there's that gap and somebody comes along to try to correct you, to try to give you constructive criticism, you get defensive. You can't take correction because to you it, it, it comes across as rejection because you're interpreting everything through the gap rather than interpreting it through, hey, I want to... Hey, if there's a gap between who I am and who I want to be, then if somebody can give me constructive criticism to help me close that gap, then I I, want to hear that. I want to hear that. It might not feel good when it lands on me, but it's building a bridge to get me from where I am to where I want to be. So you got to be like open to correction and open to 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 instruction and open to constructive criticism. All right. So those are some of the reasons why. So insecurity makes us feel jealous. We get jealous um, and and because we think, well, somebody else is becoming who they want to be and I'm not becoming who I want to be. Somebody else is feeling what they want to feel and what I want to feel and I'm not feeling it. And so we have to realize Ultimately, only Jesus can completely close that gap. Only his love can completely close that gap. But in his love, he always prepares us in advance for what we're going to face later in life. So, like, I believe that God leads us. I believe that God is my leader. So he's ahead of me. I believe he was in my tomorrow before tomorrow ever showed up. Well, and it hasn't shown up yet, but he's already been there. And he he wasn't just in my tomorrow yesterday. He was in my tomorrow before the world began. Like God knows the end from the beginning. God has been to your funeral and back. And he's wanting a lot of good things to be said about you at that funeral because he knows his will of what should be said and he knows there's a gap between between what's what should be said and what actually is going to end up being said or what some people are going to think versus what is actually said. And God wants to he wants to change that. God's been to your future. God's been to the career you're going to be in. He's already been there preparing the way for you. God's been to the mountain where you're going to climb. God's been to the into the valley that you're going to fall into sometime. God has been to your future and he likes it and he's paid a way for it and made a way for it. And he's ready to lead you into it. But you've got to deal with this insecurity thing that is keeping you from moving in the direction that God wants you to move in and gets you insecure and making bad decisions. Whenever you're whenever you feel insecurity and fear, you make bad decisions. Fear is a bad leader. Love is the best leader. Fear is the worst leader. If fear is leading you in the decisions you make, you will usually make bad decisions. All right. So in in, so I say all that to say, remember, so go back to first Samuel, chapter 18, verse six. I know I only have a few minutes and I know I said I was going to interrupt myself and receive the offering. And so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to have to do it at the end because we're already there. First, first Samuel 18. So now it happened when they were coming home, when David now who was king? Saul was king. David was the, the kid that just killed Goliath. 
and the Philistine giant. Right. And it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the women had come out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and joy. And verse seven, he goes on and with musical instruments, keep going. And so the women sang as they danced and said, Saul, they're singing about Saul. And Saul's like, Saul's insecure. Now we're going to see his insecurity show up. He's like, oh, that's so nice. They're singing about me. They said, Saul has slain his thousands. So Saul's thinking, yeah, man, I killed thousands, man. I am the best. I'm strong. I'm powerful. I'm King Saul. I have slain thousands. But then the next verse. And isn't it funny in life? that it's usually right after you feel good about yourself, something bad happens right after you feel good about yourself. Man, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And verse eight, and then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And and he said they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So verse look at verse nine says, so Saul eyed. Look at the uh, can you put the King James version of this verse up here? Uh, verse um, nine. Look at this. So Saul eyed David. So, OK, wrong version. Put the New American Standard version. So Saul was jealous of David. It's maybe that's not the right one either, but put it up anyway, just to make me look bad. Um, in the New American Standard. So Saul looked at David with suspicion. See where suspicion came from, all his fear. Um, But one translation says Saul looked at David with jealousy from that day on, from that day on. He had a now he's jealous. Why? Because now he's comparing himself. You see, whenever we compare ourselves with others, we're going to get jealous because we're you cannot measure yourself. See, you don't realize something. Saul came from some stuff David didn't come through. Saul did some great things, but we're supposed to build leaders. David's the next king. He's going to be the next king. And David should accomplish more than Saul. It's right that the next generation accomplishes more than the current generation. I don't want my children to accomplish less than me. I don't want to, like, take a seat now and and say, you know, okay, so, you know, beat me, but not by much. I am. I want to keep pushing harder and further. And and so and 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 then I want to catapult them beyond me. And I want to catapult you beyond me. I'm not saying that I'm any that me. There's anything about me that's so great. What I'm saying is wherever I'm at in life, I want to push people past that. If you can succeed more than me through anything I can do to help, man, I'm happy. I'm excited. Now, I still want you to tithe, but I'm just saying because it's the right thing to do to honor God. But you understand my heart. And because I came from this, I came from this jealous place. I came from this insecure place. And God had prepared him. So now what happens next is in verse 10. I think he even starts throwing spears in verse. So it happened the next day that distressing spirit came upon Saul and he prophesied. It says from God, it really literally is translated as God allowed it. God doesn't have a distressing spirit, but he allowed it because Saul allowed it through his insecurity and jealousy. And he prophesied and the spirit of God, this bad spirit came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand and at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear and he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, think about this, folks. This is like I mean, I've had some things I I've I've been spit on. I've been laughed at. I've been lied about. I've been, you know, I've been mistreated. Uh, I was yelled at last Wednesday if you were here. But that's nothing compared to a, a, a king with a spear. And he throws it at you and wants to pin you to the wall. Let me tell you something. 
He didn't want to pin David's shirt to the wall. He wanted to pin David to the wall. Okay, he wanted to get rid of the one that made him feel insecure. But David did not make Saul feel insecure. David simply awakened Saul. Saul Saul is now blaming David for his insecurity when really he already had all that insecurity. But now he's trying to get rid of the, the, the one who's exposing it. And David's not even exposing it deliberately. It's just getting exposed because David's being David. And sometimes the things. Sometimes the people in our lives we want to get rid of because they end up exposing something about ourselves that we don't either that either that we don't want to admit or that we don't want to deal with. Okay, and we have to be willing to deal with this to become the best version of ourselves. We have to deal with this insecurity. Are you still with me on this? Now, if you go back now, I know we're out of time, so I'm going to try to and he, he missed. David escaped. Thankfully, he escaped. He didn't throw the spear back. That's one thing we should learn in relationships is you, there will be spear throwers. Don't throw spears back at them. You know, David was so good that he killed a giant with one stone. He killed a lion. He killed a bear. Don't you think, David, when the when the when the when the spear missed him, don't you think David could have grabbed it off the wall where it missed and with one shot thrust it through the heart of Saul? He absolutely could have. But but David knows getting rid of the person who's mistreating me, getting rid of the person who's jealous of me does not make my life better. It does not advance my life. It does not make me more secure. It does not thrust me into God's purpose. But me simply forgiving and moving forward and loving and praying and trusting and dealing with my own insecurities, that's going to get me into God's purpose for my life, not me turning around and throwing spears back. There will always be spear throwers in your life whenever you're doing something moving the ball forward. There will always be haters. Haters hate dreamers. Haters hate dreamers. But dreamers can't hate the haters. Dreamers should thrive on the hate. Like you should almost like being hated because you're being hated because you're moving forward. You're exposing somebody else's unwillingness to move forward because you're moving forward. Uh, Well, there's so much more we could go down this path. There's so much leadership taught here between Saul and and David. But here's where I wanted to get to. If you go back to um, first Samuel nine and we'll tie this into the to the insecurity thing, how God prepares us in advance and then we'll receive our offering. But it says in verse one, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia, the Benjamite, a mighty man of power. He had a, he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his, Saul, to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he went and looked for the donkeys. All right. Verse five. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us return, lest my father stops caring for the donkeys and becomes worried about us. Remember, we talked a little bit about this, but here we go. And he said to him, verse six, and this is what a good friend will always do for you. This friend, his servant said to Saul, look, there is a man in the city, a man of God, and he is an honorable man. And all that he says comes to pass. So let us go there and perhaps he can show us the way we should go. So he's like, let's go find the church where there's a man of God that will speak into our lives and he will show us the way. 
And then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man for the bread in our vessels is all gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have now? Look, nobody had to teach Saul how to honor God by honoring the church and giving. I know I'm I'm getting into the offering thing, but I want to get to something else. But he said, and the servant answered Saul and said, look, we have one fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way, not to pay him. It's not that they're paying him for an answer, but they value the anointing in the man of God. And so they're giving and they're sowing seed because of honor. And they trust that if they value by placing value on the man of God, they are placing value on what God wants to say to them. And they're going to get the wisdom that they need. Did you hear what I just said? By placing value on the man of God, they place value on his anointing. Like this guy is a prophet and whatever he says comes to pass. We value that anointing. This guy is a prophet. We value that. Let's let's sow a seed. Let's get we don't have anything. to. What do we have? We can't go to the man of God and not bring a gift because then we're not that we want something from him, but we don't want to sow anything into him. We got to wake up people because to be the best version of yourself, you need to learn how to honor people. You need to learn how to value people. You need to learn how to value the word of God, how to value the promises of God, how to value the preaching of God's word. I don't mean I don't want you to value me. Don't come up to me and give me a hundred dollars. Put it in the offering. What I'm saying to you is, is I want you to get the principle here. And that is, is that they understood, man, we value the anointing that is on this man of God's life. And so we want to give into it. We want to sow into it. We want to give a gift to honor and recognize that there is wisdom coming out of this man of God. And we need some wisdom right now because our donkeys are lost. And in the King James... It's not donkeys. Because in life, man, we got to stop trying to save our donkeys. You get it. You get it. So the servant said, look, let's give him and let's go see him this prophet called the seer. So Saul said to his servant, wait, Uh, well said, come, let us go. So they, they went to the city where the man of God was and they went to the hill to the city. They met some young women drawing water and they said, is the prophet here? Is the seer here? And they answered and said, yes, he's just ahead. Hurry now. Today he came to the city. There is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you'll find him before he goes to the high place. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up uh, for about the time, about this time you will find him. So they went to the city and as they were coming to the city, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way to the high place to offer the sacrifice. Now, the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over his inheritance. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man who I told you about, he shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where the seer's house is. And Samuel said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today and tomorrow I will let you go and it will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three, year, three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And is not all the desire of Israel upon you and is not on you and on your father's house? So Saul answered and said, I'm just a Benjamite. I'm small. I'm of the tribe of the Benjamins. Why do you speak to me like this? Now Samuel took Saul to his servant, brought them into the hall, had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. And there were about 30 persons there. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, for which I said to you, set it 
aside, set it apart for bring the portion which I reserved. One translation says, bring the portion that I reserved for I have set it aside for him. I've said and the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And, and Saul said, here it is. What was kept back, it was set apart for you. It was set apart for you. Boy, if you look at the New American Standard translation of this verse, he said it was, I think is where he says it was kept reserved for you. It was reserved for you. Here's my whole point. I know it took a long time to get here. Thank you for your patience. God had prepared Saul in chapter nine to realize that he had reserved a portion for Saul. There's a portion reserved for everybody. There's an inheritance God has reserved for you because he knew nine chapters later, the opportunity to be insecure and jealous was going to come. But God wanted to get the message across to Saul now because he knows the end from the beginning and he knows what he's going to deal with. And Saul is slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. The insecurity Saul was going to go through. So he wanted to heal that insecurity in advance. Saul didn't receive it. Saul didn't let it work in his life. He didn't remember. He could have said nine chapters later, wait a minute. Like, this is how we need to be. Wait a minute. God has a portion reserved for me. So whenever somebody else is getting prosperous and promoted and getting what they're praying for and getting what they're believing for, God has reserved a portion for me. God has reserved a portion for me. And I am not going to get nervous about somebody else receiving their portion because there is enough for everybody and their portion is their portion. God has reserved a portion for me. And when you get a hold of the fact that God has reserved a portion for you, it will close that gap of insecurity. It will heal you of fear. You will know God will supply. You will have confidence when other people are going forward and you're still behind. And when other people are getting ahead and you're still haven't got ahead, you can say with when Samuel said to Saul, here is a portion that has been set aside for you. I knew you were coming. God told me it was you were coming. God told me that there was a portion for you. I set it aside when everybody else sat at the table and ate. I said, don't eat. Don't eat Saul's piece. That's reserved for Saul. And God is saying about you. Hey, 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 don't eat. Don't 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 eat Chris's piece. You know what? I'm reserving that for him. Come on now. Somebody's got to say don't eat Frank Frank's piece. I'm reserving that. I'm reserving that. for. Don't eat Iris's piece. Hey, hey, take your hands off of Iris's piece because I've reserved that for her. We got to realize that's how God does with us. That's how God thinks about us. And this is what he did for Saul. And if he did it for Saul, he'll do it for his sons and daughters who are born again. And he has always loved us and we're his favorite children. And there's so much more I want to say, but we're out of time. We're way out of time. All right, let's close. Do you get anything out of this today?